You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church, and so glad that you are with us as we are coming to a close. Uh, We have one more week after today of our Everything Teaching Series, because here at Hill City Church, we say we want to follow Jesus with? With everything. And that's a lifelong journey. It's a process of continually learning how to submit more and more areas of our lives to Christ. And today we're talking about our speech, the power of words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's a lie. It's a lie that we teach our kids. And it's a well-intentioned lie. We want our children to be resilient. We don't want, you know, we don't want the words that they hear on the playground or from a bully to, you know, to really shape their identity. But really think about that for a moment. At least that person didn't physically abuse you. I mean, that's kind of what that sentiment has behind it. That physical damage is bad, but verbal damage is totally fine. You can just, like our great poet Taylor Swift would say, (laughs) shake it off. Just shake it off. And shake it off is the verbal equivalent of walk it off to someone who's in physical pain. The reality is, some of our physical wounds heal over with scars, but the wounds done by words perhaps still haunt you to this very day. Look at the words of Christ from Matthew 12, 34 to 35. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. And this is really il- illustrates the power of words. What comes out of our mouths came from somewhere. Where did it come from? It came from our hearts. It came from deep inside of us. And so what words do is they reveal who we are on the inside. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 12 that we will either be judged or justified according to our words. And the reality is words have this power to bring forth good or evil into this world. There's this creative power that our speech has on the world around us. Think about, for in your life, the most impactful words anyone's ever spoken to you, for good or for evil. And the odds are, possibly that person knew that you would remember those words to this day, but I would, I would argue the odds are they didn't quite realize the impact that those words would have on you, that years later you would still remember that cutting critique that sarcasm, that gossip, that lie, that destructive comment, or alternatively, the encouragement or the words of truth or calling or affirmation that someone spoke over you. Words matter. Last week, we talked about our thoughts. You could summarize last week's teaching simply by saying what you think matters. And today, really, what we're looking at is what you say matters. If you have a Bible, open to James 3. You're going to be moving fast. If you like scripture, you're going to love today. If you like metaphors, any metaphor fans? If you like metaphors, then you're going to love today as well. We're going to be in James chapter 3, starting off in verse 1. 
My least favorite Bible verse, not many of you should become teachers. My brothers, for you know that we who teach, James includes himself, we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Let's look at the first metaphor. It's this idea of a rudder and a ship. I, uh, I used to live in Newcastle, Australia. It's the number one coal exporter in the world. And there's these giant, these massive coal ships. You can go down to the beach. and you'll, They look like toy boats out there in the ocean. But when they come in, you realize they're not toy boats. These are thousands of pounds of, of metal and steel. And sometimes, you know, they fill them up with coal. But it's just a tiny bit, actually, at the back of the ship. A tiny rudder, comparatively speaking, that turns that massive ship. What James is teaching us is our tongues, our mouths. It's only one part, small part of our body, but it has a disproportionate influence on your life. A small thing controls the big thing. Let's look at the next metaphor, a bit in the mouth of a horse. This is really this idea of, uh, I'm not a horseback rider, but you can see the little metal bit. The horse chomps down on it, right? And it controls the direction that the horse goes. That's really what both of these metaphors have to say with us, is there's a directive power that our speech plays in our lives. These aren't just things that we say. They're actually shaping our destinies. You might say last week, as you think, so you are. And I would argue the point today is, as you speak, so you are. That really, think about a, a, a someone pulling on a certain direction on the bit in the mouth of a horse, and it actually changes the direction that that animal goes. Powerful ship, powerful horse, powerful animal, but it's directed by a very small part. In the same way, our speech has a way of paving the direction of our lives. But we must not confuse who's really in charge, okay? This is pretty important. That is the rudder actually the one in charge of the boat? Or is the bit the one in charge of the horse? There's a person involved in both of those situations. We must not forget, we have a picture here. There's a captain on the ship that mans the helm. That's the right term, isn't it? The steering wheel for all you car drivers. The steering wheel of the ship or the helm. And then on a horse. The bit doesn't actually do any good unless there's a rider on the horse who has the reins. In the same way, James is trying to teach us that if we would just take control of the words that we speak, it would actually help us follow Jesus to direct our lives in the right directions. While the tongue is the point of power, it's not the one in power of your life. And James speaks to teachers. He speaks to people like me someone who has a microphone, and he says, you should think twice before you seek to become a teacher, because teachers will be judged more strictly. Not that you won't be judged for what you say, but I'll be judged extra. Doesn't that sound fun? The reality is, this is, this is so significant in matters of theology, 
in matters where there's an audience and the things that I say on a Sunday morning will not just shape the way that I live and the way that I direct my life, but it'll shape hundreds of people. And, uh, and yet we live in a day and age where maybe we wouldn't verbalize it like this. Oh, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a teacher. But when you think about social media and what really social media has done is it's trained us to answer this one question on a regular basis. Do you want to know what that question is when you log into Facebook? What's on your mind? Is that a, is that a good thing to always answer? No, but social media has trained us. What is on my mind? I'll just start typing and we'll see what, we'll see what comes out on social media. And, and really what social media has trained us to do is it's trained us, we wouldn't say it like this, to become teachers, but to, to become experts. We might verbalize it like this. You know, I'm somewhat of an expert myself on matters that I've never studied don't really know about. I read not even the whole article, just like the title to that article. I'll go ahead and hit share on it because it, you know, it seems true or it seems catchy. The reality is we all have these opinions. We all act like experts. And that's really what we're doing in our digital age is we're trying to teach other people what they should think, align the thoughts of anyone who reads our comments or our posts to ours. And we would do well to learn before, we're going to talk today about what we can do to, to use our speech and our words for creative power, for good and righteousness in God's kingdom. But the very first lesson that we must learn is we must learn when not to speak. A, can I get an amen? amen? We have to learn when not to speak. Look at Proverbs 17, 27 through 20. This is one of my favorite passages on uh, keeping silent. It says this, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Get this, even a fool, do you see that? Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. This is your pro tip of the day, okay? If you want people to think you're smart, just don't say anything. And people will assume, man, that person, they're always thinking. They're all, they've got something, you know, the wheels are spinning. They've got something going on. And, you, you know, people ask your opinion. You're just like, I'm just, let me think about it a little bit more. And the reality, and I've employed this tactic before. And it works. I'll tell you, it works. But the reality is we need less experts and more listeners. Because the less that you speak, the more that you're actually going to learn how to listen for understanding. Because we might say, well, I'm a, I'm a pretty good listener. I listen to the point where I finally formulated my argument or my comeback or my whatever I want to say, and you kind of tune it out after that, and then you come in with the perfect line, the one-liner. Does that make sense? We listen to a point, and what we need to learn how to do is we need to learn how to listen for understanding. Because the less that we speak and the more that we listen, we will actually grow in wisdom. We will grow in understanding. And even if at first we're fools who are just trying to seem smart, over time, if we learn to withhold our speech, God will actually shape us into people of understanding and wisdom. Earlier in James, he wrote this, James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I've heard it said, this is why God gave us two ears and one mouth, so that we would listen twice as much as we talk. And we must be, learn to be quick 
to hear and slow to speak. It's not that there's never a time to speak, and we'll talk about this in just a few minutes, but the reality is listening to someone is so close to, be, to, to loving that person that it's almost indistinguishable to a person. I mean, think about that. Just when someone comes to you, and maybe you disagree, your worldview is different than them. Your theology is different. You vote different than them. Instead of viewing that person as your enemy, view that as someone that maybe the best thing I can do to love this person is simply to listen to them so that they really feel seen and feel heard by me. We must learn to not be experts, but to be listeners. James 3, verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and of bird and of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You ready for another metaphor? A forest fire, okay? You have that picture? Have you ever seen, have you ever seen just billows of smoke from a forest fire before? There was a table rock fire here just a number of years ago. You can still find pictures of the, the cross on table rock and just flames engulfing the entire hillside. But you think about the incredible damage caused by a forest fire. Hundreds of acres at times, right? It all starts with a spark. Do you see that? It's not like somebody went out there with a flamethrower. It all starts with one spark that causes this insurmountable amount of damage. And for us, if we're quick to anger and quick to speak, what can happen is we say words that we wish we could take back, but the sad reality is the damage has already been done. Think about some of the words that have shaped people's worlds, or maybe more accurately to say have destroyed people's worlds. You're fired. I want a divorce. You'll never be good enough. Why can't you do anything right? I hate you. I don't think I've ever loved you. Those are the words that maybe spoken in haste, maybe spoken in anger, and perhaps even someone tried to take those words back after the fact. Let me put out that fire. It's the same principle of putting out a forest fire. The fire can be over, but the damage, it's going to take years to regrow that forest, isn't it? And this is why we must be people like Smokey the Bear, because only you can prevent forest fires. It's the best time to put a fire out is before it actually begins. This is why this is so incredibly important. Words are powerful. Look at Proverbs 26, 20. For, the, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. Just take away the fuel. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. And for some of us, we need to be people who don't start the fire. For some of us, that's our problem, that, that we go around starting fires. We go around speaking in haste causing situations, causing unnecessary conflict. For others of us, it's the gossip side of things where we don't start the fire, but we just want to chime in. 
We just want to add a little comment. We want to add our little perspective to the mix. We, ha- we always have something to say, and we need to learn not, not only not to start the fire, but not to add fuel to the fire. Would we be those people who can actually calm these situations? Peacemakers, as Christ calls us to be. You ready for another metaphor? James is not short on metaphors. He talks about taming animals. And he's using a little bit of hyperbole here. He's like, every animal on planet Earth has been tamed. Really, the blue whale? Does anyone have a pet blue whale? I don't know about that. But, he, but, but the point is well taken, that, that we've, we've learned mastery over wild animals. Here's a picture of my two dogs. That's uh, Willow and Pippin, and they're blue healer mixes, and uh, we trained them. Right, And sometimes I think about this was last night, Willow was just laying her head on my lap. And sometimes I think about this. I'm like, is your ancestor really the great wolf? <laughs> you know, or in, I think probably dingoes for my dogs. Like it was like some kind, you know, there's like some kind of like wild predator. And then humans at some point throughout civilization decided, I think I, that one can be my buddy. And they learned how to like tame these killer animals. And now there's like chihuahuas. And you're like, how does that even happen? You know, it's like a rat and a dog. I don't know. (laughs) The truth truth is when it comes to taming and training animals, you know this if you're a pet owner that the training is never quite done, is it? It's not like you get a puppy, you get it potty trained, you, you teach it a few tricks, and you're like, sweet, I never have to give another command to that dog again. That's not how it works. It's not enough to just train an animal. You must keep up with the training. You must continually reinforce the habits and the structures that you put in place in the very beginning. And for some of us, Maybe we've had good habits with our speech at one point in time, but we just haven't kept up with our training. And when James speaks here and he says, listen, human beings, they've been able to tame all these animals in creation, but they'll never be able to tame their tongues. That is not to discourage us. Do you see that? He's not saying that, so we're like, I guess it's not worth it. I guess there's nothing we can do. It's a losing battle. There's no way that I'm ever going to be able to control my speech. What he's trying to get us to is not to, to, not to disappoint us. What he's trying to do is he's trying to build dependence in us. I think I need to call the dog whisperer. I think I need an expert. I think I need help from someone who even created human beings in the first place. He's trying to get us to build dependence upon God, our Father. We need to seek godly wisdom. We need to seek help from the Holy Spirit in our speech. Here's a prayer that you can pray from Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You can pray that prayer. In fact, you can pray that line at the beginning of your prayers. To to ask God, would you let even the things I'm about to pray to you about be pleasing to you. And we enlist the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, and he teaches us and trains us how to use our mouths for something that builds his kingdom. James 3, verse 9. With it, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Answer? No, it can't. Can a fig, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Can a tree produce multiple kinds of fruit? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. God wants us to be whole, integrated people, not, as James would write earlier in the book, double-minded or literally double-souled. People who think that we can speak to God and speak to people on Sunday mornings in one way, and then the rest of the week speak a completely different way. What James is saying is there's this pollution effect that takes place just like a spring of water cannot produce both clean and dirty water. There's two rivers in the city I grew up in, Alaska. Grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska. This is a picture where the Chena River, which is the Clear River, comes in contact with the Tanana River. And it's, it's this crazy phenomenon. This, is, this takes place in other places in the world as well, where you just look, and it's like these two kinds of water that they don't mix. And so every time you go past it, you're like, I'm in the Chena River. And then as soon as you go past all the cloudy, silty, Tanana water, you're like, now I'm on the Tanana. And that's the river that I'm on. And we say this line, like, these two kinds of water don't mix. But is that true for what's happening? Because the Chena River is going somewhere, it's not like the water flows into the Tanana and is like, well, I guess I can't mix. I'm going to head back upstream. What happens is these two waters are in fact mixing, but one is polluting the other. Does that make sense? So if you mix fresh water and salt water, you don't get half fresh, half salt. What do you get? You get salt water. Does that make sense? And this is a very important principle that James is teaching us about our lives and about the nature of righteousness and holiness. That we think, well, I sang a few songs, or I prayed a few times, or I said a few righteous words in my life, that should make up for all the other garbage coming out of my life. Is that how righteousness works? What happens is sin is the thing that actually defiles the righteous parts of our lives. This is why Jesus' teaching on our speech is so significant. In Matthew 15, verse 18, he says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. This is why our speech is so serious. It's actually revealing the nature of our hearts. And what this should do is this should cause us to take a good, serious look at our lives. Whenever we speak something and we say, man, where did that come from? That's so not like me. Jesus would actually flip that back on us and say, what does that say about you? And the unsanctified aspects of your life. I think about the prophet Isaiah when he was called to be a prophet. He has this amazing vision where he's ushered into the throne room of heaven and he sees the seraphim and he sees the altar and he sees, uh, he see, he sees the robe of the Most High God and the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Three times holy because once or twice is not enough. And he comes face to face with God's holiness and his response to that is to say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Now, he's talking about more than his lips. He's talking about his entire life. But isn't that interesting, the language that he uses? 
Because he knows, this, just like this teaching of Christ shows us, that there's a connection between the words that proceed from our mouths and our hearts. But the, be- the beautiful thing is that he humbly submits himself, recognizing there's impurity in my life. There's unholiness in my life. There's sin in my life. I need to be cleansed. And the angel takes a, coal, a white, hot, flaming coal from the altar and brings it over to his mouth. And this is what happens in Isaiah 6, verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The bad news is that we cannot purify our own lives. We can't just try harder. We can't just monitor our speech. We can't just try to clean up our act or clean up our lives. There's no amount of righteous deeds or righteous things that we can use to scrub away the sin in our life. That's the bad news. The good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ can atone for your sins. The sacrifice that Christ paid, the son of the living God, paid for you by living a life that you could never attain to on your own, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for us, being raised in victory three days later, and that white-hot fire of God can purify you from all unrighteousness. God can purify not just your lips, he can purify your life. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's God's richness of his mercy. And so what what I want to do is we've gone through a lot of texts. What I want to do is get really, really practical with our last few minutes and go through seven words that bless. If you like taking notes, you can write down a list of one to seven. Seven words that God can use in your life to bless others, to bring forth good, and, and to even be a blessing for you, to direct your life towards his kingdom. And the first one is to confess Christ. This is really where it all begins. In fact, unless we've confessed Christ as Lord and Savior in our lives, everything else is just trying harder. Everything else is just trying to modify our behavior, just trying to work harder. It begins, the very first word is to to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to make that confession. The word confess literally means to say the same thing. To say the same thing, to, to speak in agreement with someone. And, uh, and I think about Romans 10, 9, and 10, where uh, Paul wrote, if you confess with your what? With your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. There's this connection between the mouth and the heart. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is really the beginning of our relationship with God. This is what it means to accept the gospel. This is not just an internal belief, but it actually has to come out through a confession of Christ. And this is why it's so significant. It's the only thing, it's the only part that you play when you get baptized. Do you realize that? Maybe, maybe you've seen us when we baptize someone, you ask them questions. You want to know what those questions are? Those are questions. Are, are you confessing Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Do you believe he died for your sins and rose again? And do you take him as your Lord and your Savior? That's what that person, when they're getting baptized, they're confessing Christ. Not just before God, but before God and these witnesses, before a body of believers. Everything else about baptism is, is it's not something you're doing. You're just surrendering. Someone else is baptizing you. Your only part to play is to say yes, to confess in agreement 
The same confession of faith that believers have made for the last 2,000 years of the church. Would you agree with those three statements? If you would and you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to sign up to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want to invite you to confess Christ. The second word that blesses is to share the gospel. To share the gospel. This is the greatest blessing. This is actually what Isaiah is tasked with doing. He's tasked with going and and speaking good news to set free captives after his sins are atoned for. And uh, this is what Paul goes on to say in Romans 10, 14, and 15. He says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? I love that word. How are they to hear without someone? Somebody say someone. Who's someone? I'm here. I'm going to tell you something. You're someone. Hope that's encouraging. You're somebody. Some, maybe somebody told you you're a nobody. You're not a nobody. You're a somebody, okay? You're someone. Is it significant that Paul doesn't say, and how are they to believe without a preacher who's on staff at a church preaching? Do you see this? He's saying, how are they to believe? How is your, your relative to believe if you keep quiet about the gospel? And I would say out of, the seven, out of the seven things that we can use to bring forth good in the world, to, to, to direct our speech towards God's kingdom, this is the best one, okay? To speak the good news of the gospel over people in our lives. And I know for some of you, you're like, well, I don't, I'm never going to preach a 40-minute sermon. I'm never going to do you know, that sort of thing. And that's okay. You might not have all the answers. Remember what we talked about at the beginning? Sometimes it's actually really helpful to listen, and ask good spiritual questions. So what do you believe about the afterlife anyways? Who do you think Jesus is? What's been your experience with church? And you just listen to someone. You have enough conversations listening, and you trust that the Holy Spirit is going to help you in the answering. God's going to use that relationship in a powerful way, because the power doesn't come from your eloquence, by the way. The power comes from the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. And so you just are willing to let the gospel do its stuff, okay? Amen? But you've got to be willing to actually, like, how are they to believe if, if Christians are silent, if the church is silent about the good news of the gospel? Here's another really simple, I, I could talk about this one for a long time. Here's a very simple way that you can share the good news of the gospel. Has God done anything good in your life lately? Even in the last 24 hours? Has God, done any, has God blessed you? Has God answered a prayer? Has God given you peace? Is the Holy Spirit growing any of the fruit of the Spirit? This is what it means, by the way, to have the indwelling of the Spirit. God's moving. He's active. If God is doing good things in your life, sometimes we think of the gospel as like this rehearsed script that you have to know all the bullet points and do all that stuff. And it's important to know scripture, right? But what I would say to you is if God has done anything good in your life, would you just tell someone about that? Don't keep it to yourself, but just tell someone, I've been praying for this for weeks. It's so amazing God, God is doing it. And specifically tell someone who doesn't believe in God yet. Because when you're doing that, you're actually, you're actually that's intriguing to somebody. Really? You think there's a God who answered, like personal God who an- heard your prayers and answered your prayers and just see what God does with that. Number three, tell the truth. We've got to be truth tellers as followers of Christ. We're not afraid of the truth. We know that the truth of Christ sets us free and sets people free. 
Uh, We must be people who seek the truth, who read God's word, believing it's true, and we know it. We've committed it to memory so that we're, we're able to speak the truth of God's word, but we've got to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. One of the ways that God builds up the church is not just through Sunday morning worship services. Certainly what we're doing here, we believe it's important. We're going to keep worshiping, gathering together and worshiping him. But one of the ways that Christ builds up the church is through the body of believers speaking the truth in love to who? To one another. Are you in a life group? It's not too late to sign up. There's this power that comes from the Holy Spirit speaking to one another, through one another. We are truth tellers, but we must speak the truth in a loving way, even if it's a challenge, even if it's a rebuke, even if it's calling out a lie that someone themselves has believed for years and years. So we speak the truth, but we do it in love. Number four, we speak grace. We speak words of grace. This, this idea of grace is like a gift. Would you think about that for a moment? Would you make it your mission in conversations to leave a gift for someone through your speech? I don't know if that's really our goal, is it? Often our goal, if we're honest, is to be heard, to be the one that gets noticed. Someone tells a story, that's great. Let me tell you my story that's just a little bit cooler than your story. That's what we do, because we kind of, we approach even conversations, if we're honest, a little bit selfishly, don't we? What if we approached conversations through a lens of, how can I be a gift to you? How can I speak grace to you through my words? Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for what? For building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Disney taught us, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. I say, if you don't have something nice to say, think of something nice. Just think for a moment. And it might take a little bit of thought, but just just try, like, would you make it? And we all know there's people like this, don't we? And you want to spend time with those people. Like, there's, there's other people, you get a phone call, you're like, ah. I don't have time right now, but there's some people in your life that you know they talk like this. They are people who speak grace and speak truth. Would you be one of those people? Would you be someone who's, who's full of kindness and gentleness and goodness? These are all fruits of the Spirit, and if those are fruits of the Spirit that are inside of us, they've got to start coming out. Number five, say thanks. Say thanks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something. I, I've never heard this before. I think saying thanks is more important than saying please. It's a, it's a theory. I'm working on this. Because saying please, saying excuse me, those are manners, right? Those are being polite. But saying thanks actually has something to do with a heart of gratitude. A heart of gratitude. And you can say thank you before you feel thankful. Does that make sense? You can actually begin to speak. And and I'm not saying we should try to be hypocrites, that our words really do need to match who we are. But look at what what Paul says in Ephesians 5.4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. He's talking about all these different things that are just polluting our speech. He says, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Start saying thank you more. 
And, and I would even challenge you to start saying thank you to people in your life. Try to notice things that you're thankful for. And for me, I even try to do this in my prayer life from time to time. Because I get, I get fixated at times on the things that I need God to do. I'm, I'm praying more please prayers. Does that make sense? Lord, please, please, Lord, and I help. And there's nothing wrong with that. Help is like the very first kind of prayer that we learn how to pray. It's fostering, and it's very healthy to foster dependence on God and ask God for things. But we also must be willing to, and at times what I'll do is I'll, I'll take a, a time of prayer, and I will just limit myself. Say, God, I'm not going to ask you for anything during this time of prayer, and I'm only going to say thank you. And you begin to just speak those words, you will notice there are vastly more things to be thankful for than you realized. You want a life of peace and joy? Direct your life towards gratitude through speaking thanksgiving. Does that make sense? This is like that bit in the mouth of a horse. How do you turn your life towards gratitude? It actually starts with speaking gratitude. Number six, pray out loud. Pray out loud. I'll never forget, I was at a, uh, at a prayer meeting years ago as a, as a young leader, and I was like, all right, we're going to go around and we're going to pray. And uh, someone was like, well, hey, I, uh, I don't pray out loud. And I was like, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> That's what we're, this is why we got together today. And not to shame you if, if you haven't done that a lot in your life, but I found this is actually very typical that, that for many followers of Jesus, we've just kind of treated prayer as this internal quiet. I'm going to sit in quiet. I'm going to think. And I would challenge you out to stretch your prayer life because prayer is the language of heaven. Amen. And if we're not fluent in the language of prayer, we're missing something. And we've got to learn to begin to pray out loud. And I would say praying out loud begins before you're like on the spot. It's like, all right, come on up in front of 200 people. Let's pray. And you're like, ah, you know, like I get there's a little bit of like stage fright and I don't want to stumble over what I say. I get that there's all that. Pray out loud by yourself. Pray out loud by yourself. I think there's a powerful reality that takes place when you begin to talk to God like you talk to other humans. Do you talk to other humans telepathically? <laughs> Obviously not. God is not a reality that exists only in your mind. And if we've only ever mentally communicated with God, there's power in actually out loud hearing ourselves talk to a God that we know is real. And it's, again, there's silent, there's all these different kinds of prayer. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with praying silently or writing your prayers or any of that sort of stuff. But if you want to actually connect your mouth with your heart, we've got to learn how to pray out loud and become fluent in the language of heaven. And there's power, by the way, in, in getting over some of those fears. One of the most powerful ways God can use your speech is not to just say, I'm going to pray for you later in my quiet time of prayer but could I pray for you right now? Could I just, and I always ask, could I just set a hand on your shoulder and just like to you, for you to know I'm like, not just all try to remember to pray for you, but like, would we begin to do that as followers of Jesus? Imagine if all of us were doing that regularly in our lives. Look at what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That idea of praying without ceasing is very hard to grasp. And sometimes we get it wrong a little bit. We kind of think, oh, okay, well, I have to always be praying. Am I praying right now? 
I'm preaching a sermon. So God's like, you're disobeying 1 Thessalonians 5.17. No, that's the, it doesn't mean like literally like you're like, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. You're like, oh, take your breath. I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. Oh, I got to eat lunch. Oh, I'm still praying with my mouth full. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is, is, is recognizing the direct access that you have as someone who's saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit, that when Christ died, you recognize that in the gospel, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and there's this direct access into the throne room of heaven that you can now pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week, three, six, five, anytime. You can go before your Father in heaven. Why are we not taking him up on that? And so we've got to learn to become fluent in praying and speaking. And that's what it means ultimately to pray without ceasing. That we're all, it's not, our prayer is not limited to those set times. And I'm a big believer in having set and structured times of prayer. Praying at, praying at dinner with your family, that's great. Praying at bedtime with kids, that's great. But are you willing to, in all circumstances, go before God in prayer? And then number seven is to sing praise. It's one of the most beautiful things that we can do with our speech, even if you're tone deaf, okay? Because you're not singing as a performance. You're not singing as a way for other, uh, other people. We're singing to heaven. We're singing to our king. I love what Psalm 34 verse 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Could that be said of you? That praising God is continually on your lips. Now, the reality is with worship, we, we get a little bit of American consumerism mixed up in our worship experience, don't we? We talk about how was worship today, and really, what are we talking about? How was your experience of worship? Did you like the set list? Did you like the volume? Did you like the band? Like all of that sort of stuff. The reality is that, that ultimately has nothing to do with what worship really is, because we're not singing to a band. We're singing to our Father in heaven. And we don't worship because of how we feel, even because of not just those consumeristic kind of things that we look for in a worship service, but often we even look at our life situations. It's really hard to worship this week because you're dealing with grief. You're dealing with failure. You're dealing with conflict. You're dealing with this kind of stuff. But the reality is, that's what the Psalms talk about when it talks about this sacrifice of praise. That you bring your praise before God anyways because we worship because of who he is and what he has done. Amen? And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna close our service like we always do by worshiping the king. And I would just challenge you today to worship your father in heaven with passion. Let's go ahead and stand as we sing to him. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.